All right, if you're new to Revolution, we uh, like to go through books of the Bible. We like to study the Bible the way it's written, and currently we are in the Gospel of Mark, studying about the remarkable life of Jesus Christ. And it is a mar- remarkable life, isn't it? I-, I think the more you study a person, the more you become like them. So who better to study than Jesus, right? And, you know, this is different than studying Abraham Lincoln or or Rosa Parks, or somebody famous in history, because then you're just reading a book written by a man about another person. But here, we're reading God's Word, studying about God Himself who became human flesh. And the cool thing about studying the Bible is, you have the author right there helping you understand it. And that's really cool. So we're going to jump into the book of Mark. Jaime Baez is going to be our reader this morning. So come on up here, Jaime. Welcome him. Did you see that, Jaime? I came up, nothing. You come up, you get a hand. That's really, that's the way it works around here, but that's good. That's cool. So Jaime is going to read Mark chapter 8, and beginning of verse 22, right there in front of you. Oh, this one. I'm sorry. My bad. That was my one job. One job. Messed it up. There you go. All right. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you, Jaime. Appreciate that. So, um, Wednesday morning, I went to the rec center to work out, like I usually do, as you can tell, right? Uh, and I was working out there, and everything was fine. I was having a good workout, and I came home, and I was making my protein shake like I normally do, do. and um, I took a drink of it, and all of a sudden, I just felt like this wave of cold chills come over me, and I was like, put my hands on the countertop, and Isaiah looks at me, I'm like, I don't feel right. So I just kind of stood there for a minute, kind of got my composure, and so I went, uh, I went upstairs because I had a 10 o'clock meeting, and so I started to get, I was going to get in the shower, and so the shower's over there, and the bathtub's over here. Does this sound familiar, Amanda? (laughs) um, And I'm kicking off my shoes, and the next thing I know, I'm in the bathtub, and Tammy's like, Gary, wake up, Gary, wake up, and I passed out, boom, fell into the bathtub. I don't know how I didn't hit my head on something because my woke up, my head feels fine, so I thought, man, this is weird. So I started drinking some more water, drinking some coconut water, just trying to get something in, in me to make me feel better, because I, which I thought I'd been doing a good job of, whatever. And as the day went on, didn't feel much better and started feeling weird again. And so I, I went to the ER over here at HCA, and uh, they, they were going to check me into the hospital, but they didn't have any beds. So I'm, I'm, I'm on a bed in the hallway. I'm in the emergency room till 2 in the morning, and I'm on a bed in the hallway till. Uh, the next day, and whatever. So they checked my heart out, and every, everything looked good. Evidently, I dehydrated again. Don't know why that's happening, but if you if you see me anytime, say, "Hey, Pastor, you drinking water?" 
Okay, just tell me. I don't care if you annoy me, but anyway. But I'm so glad all this happened in a day when we have hospitals. We have doctors. We have nurses. We have lots of nurses in this church. Give them a hand. We appreciate them. <clears throat> and, uh, but you know that in the day that we read about just now, these things did not exist. In fact, most people who call themselves doctors could do very little for their patients except for damage control. In fact, there was no such thing as a cure for disease until the 19th century. So today, you know, when one of us gets sick, when we hear that someone has cancer or needs stints put in their heart or whatever it may be, we pray for them. And we pray, if you've noticed, we kind of pray two ways, and, and it's not unbiblical. We pray that God would heal them or that God would use doctors and medical people to heal them. But either way, God uses both, right? But we, we, we feel like we have two options, although it's really all God. But we look at it that way. Back then, one option. If God didn't heal you, you probably were going to die. You know, it, you know some sicknesses you got over, but diseases, they killed you. In fact, during the biblical time, for a man to live to age 45 was considered long. The mortality of kids, even up to just a couple of centuries ago, if you had eight kids, you would be lucky if you saw half of them live to adulthood. It's just the way life was. Death and disease was so common. So from this, for this man from Nazareth to come and to come into the Palestinian area and heal people, even Roman historians talk about how death and disease, disease was almost wiped out in the Palestine area because of this one man, Jesus. It was amazing what he did. He, he, he healed thousands, sometimes all day. I really like that one episode of The Chosen where Jesus from sunup to sundown is healing people. And at the end of the day, he's totally exhausted and he goes to his tent and he lays down and just goes to sleep because he's totally wiped out from, from the ministry of healing people all day long. Now, last week, just to give you a little background, we talked about three things. Feeding the famished 4,000, right, which was the second feeding of thousands. Then we were, he was fighting off the phony Pharisees who came and were arguing with him about what he taught. But then he got frustrated with his faithless followers, the disciples, because they still didn't understand. And that's so important because what just happened when Jesus says, do you not understand, when he talks about the leaven of the Pharisees and their hypocrisy, their worldliness of of the Herodians and the liberal theology of the Sadducees. He's like, you still don't understand. I wasn't talking about you forgot to buy bread. I'm warning you about hypocrisy. I'm warning you about hearing the word of God, but not letting it change you. Okay? And we've all been around that, right? We've, we've been guilty of that, where we hear the word of God, and we're just like, oh, that was interesting. And we go away, and we're no different than we were before. And Jesus says, watch out, beware, that kind of stuff is, is dangerous. That's so important to plant that in your mind because it's really the backdrop for this story. So then he came to Bethsaida, which is the hometown of three of his disciples, Peter, Andrew, and Philip. So Jesus is well-known in this town. His disciples are well-known in this town. Jesus does more miracles in Bethsaida and Capernaum, which Capernaum is Jesus' hometown, than anywhere else, okay? In fact, you could probably say, just based on the biblical accounts of the four Gospels, he did more miracles in those two towns than all the other areas combined. So these people saw no shortage of miracles. And yet, he, he's not very happy with them. Um, it, he, in Matthew 11, he even 
pronounces woes upon them, like a, a warning of judgment. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin, which is another name for Capernaum. Woe to you, Bethsaida, which is a town where all this just happened. Where he, and by the way, did we just read Jesus spit in a guy's eyes? <laughs> yes. Yeah, some of you may have never seen that before in the Bible, but it's, 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 it's weird. Uh, but we'll talk about why he did that here shortly. Um, he said, For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon. Now, let me tell you about Tyre and Sidon. They were the Las Vegas red strip of, of the day. Prostitution, people being sold. They would, they would kidnap Jews and sell them into slavery from Tyre and Sidon and put them in boats. And before you even know it, your, your daughter could be gone and in a boat out in the middle of the Mediterranean. I mean, they, all kinds of wickedness happened in Tyre and Sidon. And he says, if I had done these miracles there, they would have repented a long time ago with sackcloth and ashes, which is the way of the people repented back then. They put on something very uncomfortable and they poured ashes over their head to publicly say, hey, I am sorry for what I've done. Okay, it was, it was public mourning and specifically mourning over sin. I am sorry and sad about my sin. He says, those people, if I had just done some of these miracles you guys saw there, it would have been a totally different story. But you guys, I'm doing all this stuff right in front of you and you guys are still having hard hearts over this whole situation. So this is a warning from Jesus to those of us who have been exposed to so much of his love, teaching, and power. How many of you have grown up in church? You've been in church since maybe before age 10, okay? And then others of you have been in church for years and years and years. And, and, and I, I am concerned for all of us because there's not one person in this room who is immune from turning their back on all of it. I've seen it. I've seen people who were pastors, deacons, women of God, teachers of the Bible, who you just looked up to, and next thing you know, they've totally like want nothing to do with God. And it, it's, it, we have to be careful because familiarity can breed contempt. Where you're around this so much that if you don't really keep your eyes open, and more importantly, your heart open, you can become really calloused really quick. And next thing you know, you're the one that's an addict, or you're the one that's left your family, or whatever you want to, scenario you want to imagine, and, and it, we're not immune from it. That's why repentance needs to be a lifestyle. We never come to the point where, oh, I know all this stuff. I remember one time uh, when I was a youth pastor years ago at a church, and there was this one kid in my youth department. He was there every Sunday, and you know, Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday. I remember back in the day when you went to church 45 times a week, okay, and uh, his dad was a deacon in the church, and I would be teaching lessons, and I would do my best to try to not be boring, especially for teens. You know, I would do goofy stuff. I had all kinds of stuff. And every Sunday morning, he's like this, face down, taking a nap. And finally, one, one Sunday after Sunday school, I caught him at the door. I said, hey, Jeff, come here. I said, what's up with the snooze and doing class? He said, oh, I've heard all this before. I was raised in church. I've heard everything. And I'm like, that is a dangerous statement to make. Okay, I got saved when I was nine. I, I've been, I got a degree in theology. I've been in the ministry for over 30 years. And yet every, every week, I'm like, wow, look at that. I never noticed that before. I see that all the time. What makes one person say, oh, I've heard it all before? No, you have not. Take the plugs out of your ears. Take the callus off your heart. Beware teenagers, because some of you will grow up and go to college, and you've got professors tell you, oh, the Bible's not true, and your parents were old-fashioned. You can do what you want, sleep with who you want, whatever. Just go for it. And some of you are going to give in to that temptation, 
And then you're going to find yourself lonely, brokenhearted, and ashamed and said, I wish I'd listened to my parents. I wish I'd listened to the people at my church. Because if you're not careful, you too can be like Bethsaida, where miracles are happening all around you. And you're like, eh, I don't know if Jesus is for real or not. So in verse 22, it says, And some people brought to him, so this, this guy who is blind, people brought him to him. And you see this pattern. Once, remember the, the original story where uh, the people, they lowered, the four people lowered the guy through the roof? Once that happened, it set the precedent like, hey, man, let's, who can we grab? And they started bringing people, and it really became a very positive trend to grab somebody, maybe kidnap them, I don't know, but grab somebody, hey, come on, come on, you need to see Jesus. He's, he's the answer to your problems. Man, we need some of that today, amen? We need people bringing people to Jesus. Aren't you glad someone brought you to Jesus? I remember Mike Webb, uh, kid down the street, not a good kid, <laughs> uh, not very well behaved, but he got a flyer on his door from a church saying, come to Vacation Bible School and you might win a bike. Well, he's like, and of course, for every friend you brought, you got your name put in the drawing for the bike. So he's like, Gary, you want to come to Vacation Bible School with me? I'm like, yeah, sure. So Mike didn't win the bike, but Gary found Jesus. And I'm very thankful that, 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 that he brought me, even for so the wrong reasons. But we need to bring people to the Lord. And that doesn't mean just bring them to church. Bring them to church is a good thing. Amen? Bring them to people to church is a good thing. But you bring them to Jesus yourself is also a very good thing. Okay? It doesn't have to be either or. I mean, whatever way works. But uh, this, I'm so thankful these people brought this guy to Jesus. And it says, and they begged him to touch him. And you see this word beg like 74 times in the Gospels where people are begging Jesus. And I, I don't really know what to make of that, but it, I think what it shows is the desperation of the friends. That they're begging Jesus, please, please. And, and you know, God, God wants us to be desperate for, for solutions. Because when you're desperate, you realize, I can't do this. You're going to have to do it. And that's where we should have started, right? So it says, and, and he begged them to touch him. Now, what's interesting is that Jesus did definitely laid hands on people by, by healing them. But he also used a lot of different methods, okay? In the Old Testament, laying on of hands was for three things. You would lay hands on the sacrifice, which was a picture of sanctifying this animal to the Lord and also transferring my sins to the animal, which was a picture of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God to come. The animals, there was nothing supernatural, spectacular about the animal. It was a representation of the Savior who was going to come. But that this animal would take my sins. And then their animal would be sacrificed, you know, blood drained and put on the altar and burned. Another way that they... Um, laid on hands was for the priest to lay hands on other people or lay hands on the priest to anoint them as you are identified as a leader, as a spiritual person to do the work of God. And we still do that today. We ordain, when we ordain men, we lay hands on them. Nothing magical going on here. It's just a symbol of we're conveying leadership to you. And the third way that people laid hands on the Old Testament was a blessing. When many times fathers would come to their blessing, their father to receive a blessing and they put their hand on their head and they'd convey a blessing. So those were three things. But in the New Testament, we see a more specific blessing and that is the blessing of healing. And so they were asking Jesus to do that, but Jesus could do it whatever way he wanted, right? How many times did Jesus just say the word and the healing happened? Even one time for Jairus' daughter, Jairus says, hey, you don't have to come to my house. Just say the word and it'll be done. The one who spoke the world into existence can heal from any 
direction. So they're telling Jesus how to do it, which isn't a really good idea. <laughs> Let Jesus choose how he wants to heal. But they're specifically telling Jesus how to do it. And it says he took the blind man by the hand. So here's a crowd, probably thousands of people. They bring this blind man to him, okay? And he, first of all, he, he held his hand. I just picture the tenderness of Jesus, okay, this, with this blind man, and he holds his hand. First of all, blind people, deaf people, mute people, pretty much any type of disease, especially leprosy, but all diseases were thought by people to be a sin by them or a sin by their parents. You know, later Jesus will heal another blind man, and they, they, they said to Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus like, neither. Why do you always assume that when someone's going through a wrong time or, or, or a bad time, it's because they've done something wrong? Don't assume that. That's bad theology. Remember that was Job's friends? Job lost all of his kids, lost all of his cattle, lost everything but his nagging wife. And Satan's like, no, leave her alone. She's great. You know, she's going she's gonna to be more of a curse alive than she would be dead. And, and Job's friends, and husbands can be that way too, just for fairness here. Okay, Job's friends came and said, Job, hey, fess up. What have you done wrong? God is obviously cursing you. And that is bad theology. We, life stinks. We all go through hard times. We, all go, we live in a sin-cursed world. Good people, humanly speaking, can get cancer and has nothing to do with what they've done wrong. Now, it doesn't mean you can't do wrong to contribute to that, okay? My mom smoked from age 12 all the way up to her 80 years old and died of emphysema. Direct correlation there, right? But there are some times it has nothing to do with what you've done. So be really careful about judging other people and say, uh-huh, what's going on in your life? You lost your job. You must, oh, you see, you skipped church last Sunday. You got fired on Monday, uh-huh. I see how it works. No, you don't. No, you don't. You can't always put, make, connect those dots. Um, but, so this blind man, to everybody around him, seemed like he was, a cursed, he was cursed and abandoned by God. And a lot of people didn't even want to touch him. The Pharisees, they don't even want to touch people. They didn't want to mix with the riffraff and all that stuff because they were all cursed by God and not as holy as these guys. But Jesus goes right up to sinners and he touches them. And he held this guy by the hand. Now think about this. We do not know if this guy was born blind or lost his sight. Some people speculate because he said, I see men walking as trees, and he knew the difference between the two. They probably did have sight at one time, but that's not necessarily true. I think people have been born, for their, born blind for their whole life. They've touched trees, and they've touched people, and they can mentally distinguish the difference. So we don't know. It doesn't really matter. But, um, but if you're blind, a lot of times you have to be led around by the hand, and you had to trust somebody to be led by the hand. And this guy probably doesn't know Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, let's go for a walk. And it says that he, that he led him out of the village. So I don't think this was 200 yards, 300 yards. This could have been a mile. Wouldn't it have been cool to be on that, listen to that conversation, Jesus and this blind guy walking down the road? Say, hey, tell me who you are. Tell me where you're from. Tell me about how long you've been blind. And they're having this conversation as Jesus is leading the guy by the hand. Hey, watch out for this rock up here. We're going to make a left-hand turn up here. And Jesus is doing this for a long time, developing this relationship, which is pretty cool. It says, and when he had spit on his eyes. Wow. <laughs> I don't even know where to start with that. I've tried to make a joke about it. But Jesus says, okay, now hold still. This is going to seem weird. 
what? What are you doing? Well, hold still. Okay, I get the other eye. He spits on both eyes. Unless Jesus is really good and say it when he sprays, it gets both eyes with one spit. I don't know. But, um, and then he says, hey, do you see anything? The guy's like, I see spit, <laughs> you know. Uh, but he asks him if he sees anything. This is really a very super unique miracle. This is one of two miracles that's in Mark that's not in any of the other Gospels, which isn't a problem because they all have uniqueness. That's why we're glad that we have four Gospels for four perspectives. And it says he looked up, and the word looked up means he just looked up and out. He wasn't like looking up to heaven necessarily. He says, I see people, but they, they look like trees, and they're walking. So this is really an unnatural scene, okay? This is, this is not normal. And Jesus didn't fail. Like, oh, let me spit again. I, I didn't get it right that time. You know, I don't have my mojo working here today. No, it was Jesus is intentionally doing this in two stages. Every other time in the Bible when Jesus heals, it's perfect. It's perfect immediately. So when you see faith healers on television, they heal someone, and oh, and then three weeks later I was better. That's not Jesus, okay? I don't know what that is, but that's not Jesus. Jesus heals instantaneously. Men can do things that maybe don't work as well. But here's what's fascinating. You want to, if you think about it, the Bible refers, talks about trees a ton. In the beginning, Adam and Eve are where? In the garden. And what are their choices? It's about trees, right? All throughout the Bible, there's trees. And you see bad things happening under trees. You see good things happening in trees. And of course, Jesus dies on a tree. Curses everyone hangs on a tree. Now again, tree was, like we say you run into the woods and then this is made out of wood. You know how we, this is wood and that's wood. They say tree, this is tree, that's tree. Same thing. So to say Jesus hung on a tree means he hung on wood. Okay, but you see it all throughout the Bible. And not only are men surrounded by trees and even in heaven, you got the beginning of the Bible in the garden, you got the end of the Bible in paradise restored. And guess what? There's the tree of life which has all manner of fruit all year long on each side of the river of life. So trees are all throughout the Bible. But not only is that we're surrounded by trees, but also it says that we are trees. I am the vine, you are the branches, right? And, uh, and then you are supposed to bear much fruit, you know, and then talks about your roots going down deep, being planted by rivers of water, and then your leaf would not wither, all the things. You are called trees. In fact, you want to hear an excellent podcast. You know what I'm going to say, Patrick, right? Go The Bible Project, look up the whole episode. There's like five podcasts about trees and how they are all over the Bible. Um, I, I won't go into that further. I won't chase a rabbit here. But Jesus wanted him to see this as an illustration. Remember I said, what's super important? The disciples just saw all these miracles. He said, and Jesus is like, so when I fed the 5,000 plus, how many baskets were left? Uh, 12,000. Yeah, and when I just fed these 4,000 people, how many baskets were left over? Uh, seven. And he's like, and you still don't get it. And then he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. But he gets on them for not understanding. They understand some, but they don't understand completely. But later, they will understand completely, as you'll see here in just a second. So Jesus laid his hands on him again, on his eyes again. So when he touched him the first time, he touched his eyes, and then he spit on his eyes. Now he touches his eyes again. And so you think, spit. Why spit? This is the third time Jesus involves a miracle. Well, this is two of three, where Jesus involves a miracle involving spit. Previously, it was, he spit on his hand and touched the guy's tongue. 
Yeah, that was gross. You should have been here last week, okay? And then he sticks his finger in his ears, which most archaeologists think that that was the beginning of the wet willy. Right there, that was it, okay? But anyway, he, later he'll mix his spit with mud and heal a guy. So three times. Now, if you spit on somebody, how do you feel about them? Pfft, I love you, right? Is that what it is? What, do you, what, do you, what is going on right there? It's, it's an ultimate sign of disrespect. It is showing that you hate something, okay? And I don't want, I don't, the Bible does not explain this, so this is totally speculation, okay? But because this guy, we don't know that he sinned that causes blindness, but we know he lives in a world full of sin. And Jesus hates these things. Remember, when he healed the guy who was deaf and mute, what did he do before that? He sighed. <sighs> And some liberal commentators say, Jesus did this because he knew it was going to be a really hard miracle. Pfft. Stupid. Just stupid. No, Jesus was grieving. How many times does it say Jesus had compassion on people? He has compassion. You know, and he was just feeling bad for this guy. But Jesus is identifying with this, the guy's blindness and saying, how much I hate blindness. How much I hate sin. How much I hate disease. And so Jesus spits on the thing that he does not like. Okay, to show that I hate sin because I'm here to conquer sin. That, that's my theory on that. But he laid his hands on his, his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his th- sight was restored. And the word store, restored here means brought back to perfection. This was 2020 vision. This guy could see. In fact, it says, and he saw everything clearly. And the word clearly means he saw through things. Now, I don't want to read too much into that, but it means he, he could see far away, he could see past everything, and he no longer was seeing men walking his trees. So why does Jesus choose to do this in two stages? Well, let's talk about that. This is a very unique miracle. Again, spit's involved. It's really weird. Uh, but it's the only miracle where Jesus asked the person a question afterwards. He says, so do you see anything? Now, Jesus knows. It's just like God in the garden with Adam and Eve. Adam, where are you? It's not because God doesn't know. He wants this guy to open his eyes and look around, and he wants him to identify what he sees. And then, also, it's the only time in the Bible where Jesus purposely does something in two stages. Again, it's not a failure. It's not like Jesus needs to try harder. He's purposely doing it to teach us a lesson, and more specifically, the disciples' lesson. And it's the only miracle that appears to be used as a parable. Now again, this is my speculation on this, but a lot of people I read agree that this is what Jesus is doing. He's using this two-stage miracle as an object lesson for the disciples who no doubt were right there watching. So notice the context of the miracle. Context is everything. Whenever you come across a Bible verse you don't understand, understand, it's like real estate. Location, location, location. Where in the Bible is it written? What was written before? What was written after? After That'll help you understand. So notice the context of the miracle. Jesus just rebuked the disciples for not understanding about the feeding of the five thousands, uh, the thousands twice. Five thousand and four thousand, okay? And after this miracle, the disciples say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Do you see that? Like they, they, they go from well, we understand some, but we don't understand everything to where like, oh, we get it. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's what this miracle was about. He showed that sometimes you, under, you get sight, but you really don't see everything clearly. But then if you're touched by Jesus again, you'll see even more clearly. And I, I believe that what, what you have here is a picture of a nor, newly born Christian who goes from blind to seeing. They just got saved, they see. But do they understand everything? 
Does God, when you become a born-again Christian, does God pour everything you should know right in your minds immediately? No. You probably see men walking as trees, but at least you can see. Before you were blind, you were in darkness, but now you can see, but you still don't fully understand, and you don't totally understand the Bible. But as we grow in Christ, we begin to see things more clearly. And this is where the disciples went. They went from totally confused, not understanding, to like, oh, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so like, it's like their eyes had been opened again. So this is how it works for the gospel. This was true with me. When I was at Vacation Bible School and Dr. Lee Boffman is preaching the gospel and he's preaching about the parable of the sower and how the, the seed is the word of God and you let the, let the word of God come in your heart and bear fruit and you need to be saved. Let, let the Lord give life to your heart and, and trust Christ as your Savior. That he died for you. He was buried and rose again. That's the gospel. And I put my faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ and accepted Jesus as my Savior and I was born again. And even though I was only nine years old, it really was like, whoa. You know, I, I didn't, wasn't recovering. I wasn't a crack addict. I wasn't dealing drugs. I wasn't pimping. I wasn't doing any of those things, okay? But it still was going from darkness to light. And, and that's what it means to be saved. And the gospel for decades was, oh, that's what I believed back then. But man, as I'm growing as a Christian, even in the last few years, the last five years, I've understood that the gospel is not just what I need to be saved back then, but I need the gospel every day, every day. The gospel is Jesus died for me while I was an enemy and a sinner so I can forgive my wife. Jesus died for me and loved me unconditionally that I did not deserve so I can love my neighbor who doesn't deserve it. My neighbor really doesn't deserve it. Uh, Jesus died for me and was patient and loving and kind to me. That's what kind of dad I need to be. You see, the gospel is what you need to get saved, but the gospel is what you need to live every single day and to grow in Christ and to realize that I am, every morning you wake up and you breathe, you are breathing air you do not deserve. Every, every day you go to work, you have a job that was given to you as a gift of grace. When you come home to your family, as imperfect as they are, as imperfect as you are, it is all a picture of the gospel. My marriage is not about my pleasure and my companionship. My marriage is about Christ's love, the church, like a husband ought to love his wife. You see how the gospel just saturates everything? And at first you just think, oh, that's just what I need to get saved. No, that's just the beginning. The gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity. The gospel is the A to Z of Christianity. It is everything. So let me ask you a question. If this miracle was to teach that, hey, you need to be saved, but now you need to grow so you can see things more clearly, what evidence could your friends or your family point to to show, wow, you really are growing. Man, I remember a few years ago, you were this, but now you're this. Is that question uncomfortable? I, I, I hope not, but I do know Christians who have been Christians for decades, and it's like they, don't, they struggle with the exact same list of sins. They seem like their Bible knowledge is not any more than it was back then. They still lose their temper. They still whatever, just the same struggles. Now, do we go from lost to perfect? No, but there should be a trending upward. And it can be like the stock market. It can be ups and downs. But the overall trend is from you went from here to here. And you may have had a lot of dips in the meantime. Amen, we do have those, right? But the overall trend is you should be growing in Christ, the outward man perishes, but the inward marriage is renewed day by day. You should be growing. What evidence is there that you 
are growing. I think that's what this parable is about, that we're supposed to be seeing things more clearly. And he sent him home, and he says, don't even enter to the village. So this guy lives, as probably a lot of handicapped people did, on the outskirts of the village. He said, go home. And I know the temptation is, go tell everybody what happened to you, but I don't want you to do that. Again, Jesus is managing his reputation here. He doesn't, sometimes he does tell people to go tell, and sometimes he, most times he doesn't. Because what he's trying to do is he wants the complete story to get out. That the, that the man born of a virgin who did miracles and lived a perfect life died for you. And that's the whole story. Not just that there's a miracle worker, but there's a miracle worker who proved his deity as God becoming flesh, dying for you. And so we know this is true because when he rose again, what did he tell them? Go tell everybody. Go tell not just your village, your town. Go tell the world. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every living creature. He didn't tell anybody to stop telling then because now the whole story is complete. All this was leading up to his death, burial, and resurrection. So if you look at the miracles of Jesus, they happened in a day when disease ran rampant and cures didn't come about until the 19th century. The disease, the handicapped people were considered cursed by God and unclean. And Jesus always healed to help others, never to benefit himself. Remember when Satan came to him and said, and he tempted him all these different types of temptations, and one of them was, here, see the tabernacle, the temple? Why don't you jump off because it's promised, and he takes a verse in Psalms out of context, says, you know, your angels have charge of you, and your foot will not be dashed against the stone. He said, why don't you jump off, and then angels will just catch you. Jesus never does selfish miracles like that to benefit himself. He always does miracles to bless others, to be uh, a teaching tool for others, but not for himself. Even though he said, you know, he's hungry, he's starving. How many days had Jesus gone without food? Forty. And he said, why don't you turn these stones into bread? Could Jesus have done it? But if he did it, who would he be doing that miracle for? And is Jesus selfish? No. Jesus always does miracles to benefit. In fact, um, there's some books that are people like skeptics, like, well, why aren't these? You know, there's a whole lot of other gospels besides the four. There's the gospel of Thomas and the gospel of Mary and the gospel of all these other things. And, and you know why we know those aren't in the Bible and don't belong in the Bible and then we're never, we're never believed to be part of the Bible other than a couple of heretics? It's because in those books, they have Jesus performing miracles stupidly and selfishly. Like one of them in the Gospel of Thomas, Jesus loses a foot race to a boy, so he turns the boy into a frog. You know, um, Jesus is a little boy, and he's working with his dad, Joseph, who's a carpenter, and his dad cuts a piece of wood. that He cuts it too short, so now it doesn't fit where he's trying to nail it up. So Jesus stretches the wood and makes it grow. You know, just all kinds of dumb, stupid miracles, not where you see Jesus healing people for their good, but just miracles of convenience, which Jesus would not do. And then he also used various methods. One time he's speaking, one time he's touching, one time he's spitting, one time he's using mud, one time, I mean, he's doing all different things. And Jesus mixes up the methods so the emphasis will be on who is doing the miracle and not how. If Jesus had one method he used a lot, guess what people would be doing today? You know, they would be, touch him on their right shoulder and they'll be healed. Oh, you touched the wrong shoulder. That's why it didn't work. No, the emphasis isn't on the how. The emphasis is on the who. So Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now, this was a Romanized area. 
Um, so that's why the Caesar name in it. And then it had been renamed several times. And so um, Philip named it after himself. So it was Caesar Philip type town there. And, then he, and he asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And Jesus was most likely standing around here. Okay. And this is at Caesarea Philippi, which is similar to the rock of Gibraltar. It's the rock of Caesarea Philippi. It's a massive rock. It's not big enough to be called a mountain, but it's not small enough to be called a little rock. It's, it's basically a mount or a rock. And all kinds of wicked stuff happened here. Okay. Um, let's just walk through some of them. First of all, this is, if you study the Mount Herm, if you study the Old Testament, this is the base of Mount Hermon, where a lot of great stuff happened in the Old Testament. But it's also the largest rock around for over 500 miles. And legend believed that this is where demons cohabited with women. Now, the Bible doesn't say that this is where it happened, but that's where a lot of people, especially in the apocryphal books, believe this happened. So the reputation, the superstition was, this is where this bad stuff went down. In fact, this is the place where they worshiped the god Pan, who is half man, half goat. So a lot of sketchy stuff went on with goats at this place. Just let that go there. And people sacrificed children here. All kind of prostitution took place here. And if you remember, if you look back at this picture carefully, you'll see that there's a cave and water flowed from this cave. And they really believe that this is where demons went in and out of the cave. And this is where they entered hell. And people call this, watch this now, the gates of hell. Does that phrase sound familiar? So guess where Jesus says, okay, you see all this worship going on of all kinds of evil stuff? Pan and all the other goddesses and Baal worship and pagan worship. You see what people say about all this? Who do you say I am? See what Jesus is doing? He's saying, okay, compare me amongst all the other gods of this world. Now, who do you think I am? And so, it's, and then he goes on to say that this, this, that's a true statement that I am the Christ, some God, and the gates of hell will not prevail against my kingdom. Okay? So it's cool to know the background about all this. So, um, this is where they believe, again, the gates of hell. Now, think about we, the gates. If you live in a gated community, what do gates do? They keep things out. They close to keep things out. And Jesus is saying, no, they're not keeping us out. They're not going to prevail. We are going to be on the offensive and attack hell. We often, as Christians, spend too much time thinking about hell and demons, Satan's attacking us. We really need to be focused on attacking Satan and attacking the gates of hell, and going after it. Now, what, if it's a prison, and there's gates, not only are certain people being kept out, but other people being kept what? In. And our job is to bust down the gates, go in, get prisoners, and set them free. And that's what the gospel of Jesus Christ does. People who are in prison and shackled by addiction, shackled by depression, shackled by, you name it, sin in general, our job is to go in there and let them set them free through the love of Jesus Christ. And it says, Jesus went on to Caesarea Philippi. And this is, where, this is the place where he asked, who do men say that I am? And well, they had different answers. Some told him John the Baptist. Remember Herod, what did he do to John the Baptist? He cut off his head. And then when he heard Jesus was performing miracles all over the place, what did Herod say in his superstition? Uh-oh, John the Baptist is back from the dead, and he's reincarnated as Jesus. Man, I'm in trouble. You know, the wicked flee when no man pursues. He's all paranoid and stuff. 
That's not what happened. Jesus was not John the Baptist. John the Baptist always deferred to Jesus as he's greater than I am. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Some say you're Elijah. Now, why Elijah? Because while Moses is the greatest prophet of the Old Testament as the lawgiver, Elijah is the greatest prophet of the Old Testament as far as doing miracles, calling down fire from heaven, raising the dead, doing all kinds of great stuff there. So they thought, well, maybe Elijah is reincarnated here. And even the prophecy said that, that Elijah must come to pave the way of the Messiah. So they think, well, maybe Jesus says Elijah reincarnated and all that stuff. Again, the Bible does not teach reincarnation. Um, or they say maybe just any one of the Old Testament prophets and you've come back to life. And he asked them, okay, that's great that people think all these things that aren't true, but I want to know who do you say that I am? And Peter, Peter says some dumb stuff, often will take his foot out of his mouth and say something right. Sometimes he says something dumb, sometimes he says something right. Can you relate? Anybody can relate? I can, right? Okay. Um, and he says, you are the Christ. Now, in Matthew, Matthew gives more detail, which is really funny about this because Mark, I don't know if I've said this before or not, Mark is also known as Peter's gospel because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all interviewed people. Okay, and again, the chosen bears that out really good. It's really cool. It's very accurate. But they all interviewed several people. But Mark, his primary source for writing the book of Mark was Peter. So some people would even call it Peter's gospel because almost everything that's said here is based on Peter telling them, yes, and then this happened, and this happened. But Mark is tailoring all this for a Roman audience and a Gentile audience. That's why whenever he says something in Hebrew, he says, which means this. He interprets it for them because these people don't know Hebrew. And so Matthew includes more detail. Matthew's 28 chapters long, a lot more detail. He says, Simon replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, what's interesting about that also is that where, where the gates of hell were, um, Caesar had an adopted son that ruled over that area. Okay? I think it was Philip. Um, I'd have to reread that part of that. But anyway, but it's almost like a smack at that. Like, no, you're actually the son of God. You're not an adopted son. You're the son because Caesar thought he was God. And so therefore, his ones who ruled under him were adopted children. But hear what Peter's saying. No, you're the actual, not adopted, but the actual son of the living God. And Jesus answers that, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Goes back to his old name there. Bar means son of. It's like McDonald means son of Donald. Bar Jonah means son of Jonah or son of John. And he said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Here's another really cool thing about this passage. Over there at the gates of hell, guess what was being sacrificed? Flesh and blood. And that's how they'd hear from their gods. And Jesus says, you know what? You didn't have to sacrifice a child to understand this. My heavenly father who is in heaven revealed this to you. So this is also makes the story even more powerful when we understand those details. And it says, in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes this, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Okay? Now, think about this. In Psalm 19, it says, the heavens what? Declare the glory of God. And the firmament, or the stars, show forth His handiwork. So when you look at creation, it tells you two things. Um, uh, really several, but two main things. Number one, that there is a God. Okay, you can't look at a watch and not know there's not a watchmaker. You look at the creation, you look at the stars, you're like, man, somebody made all this. And number two, whoever made all this, all this is really powerful and really kind. He could have made food taste bad, but we have to eat it to survive anyway. But he made it taste amazing, right? And so 
uh, he made it to where we could breathe, we can enjoy life, we can enjoy a lot of things in life. So not only is he powerful, but he's very good, and there is a creator. But it doesn't tell you about salvation. It doesn't tell you about God's sovereignty. It doesn't tell you about the holiness of God, the love of God. It just says that there is a God and he's good, but we need a revelation from God to understand the attributes of God, the character of God. It says just the, all those things, when you start talking to a lost person about that, they're folly, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, a few verses earlier, he said this, these things, what things? The deep things of God, not just the fact that he's, there's a creator. That's not deep. That's just the obvious. But the deep things of God, he's revealed to us through the Spirit, and the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God, the deep things of God. So without a Bible, you really don't know about the love of God. You know there is a God from creation, but you don't know about the love of God, the sovereignty of God, the holiness of Jesus, his sacrifice on the cross, redemption, all those things. That's why God has given us the Bible, so the lost person, we could share scripture with them. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So here's a statement that's controversial between Catholics and Protestants, but really just read it for yourself, and you can see it's pretty simple. And he's, So Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he says, and I tell you, Jesus is speaking, you are Peter. The Greek word for Peter is Petros, which means a rock, like you could throw. A small rock. He says, and on this rock, the, your statement, you are the Christ, this Petra, which is a massive rock, like the rock of Gibraltar or the rock that they're standing in front of. He said, but upon this statement that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, I will build my church. Now, I grew up Catholic. Catholics believe that the church is built upon Peter. He said, oh, you're Peter, and upon this rock, Peter, I'll build my church. But the language there says, no, you're a pebble, but, across, but you just said something massively big, okay? And upon this massive statement you just made, I will build my church and the gates of hell, which we're standing right in front of, will not prevail against it. That, it's pretty clear if you just read the language carefully. Plus, whenever you don't understand a passage of scripture, read it carefully, but let scripture interpret scripture. Does the rest of the New Testament say the new, that the church was built upon Peter? No, it doesn't. In fact, Romans 9.33, he's quoting from Isaiah. He says, as written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, okay, a, a stumbling, a rock of offense. Again, not a small throwing rock, but a massive rock. And whoever believes on him, who's the him? Jesus. So who's the rock? Jesus is the rock, will not be put to shame. The rock is not Peter. The rock is Jesus. And the, the fact that Jesus is the son of the Christ, the son of the living God. Paul adds in Ephesians 2.20, he says, built, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And what is a cornerstone? It's a big, massive rock that you build the rest of the building on. So it's very clear from the Bible that Peter, while a great leader, is not the first pope. He's not, the church is not built upon him. Thank the Lord. Uh, the church is built on someone much better, and that's Jesus. And then Jesus says, again, something interesting. He strictly charged him. I mean, he's pretty firm with this guy. I don't know if he grabs him by the shirt and goes, I don't tell anybody. <laughs> I don't know if he's that. But he's like, hey, I'm serious about this. Don't tell anybody about me. He's telling, he's telling the disciples. Before he told the blind guy, don't even go into the village. Now he's telling the disciples, hey, you just said something wonderful, but don't tell anybody about me yet. Yet, okay? I'm adding the yet for emphasis there because later he would tell them. So this brings us to the big question. Who do you say that Jesus is? 
Is Jesus someone conveniently added to part of your life? You know, you've got this job, you've got your family, you've got Jesus, you've got all these things, and when you can fit it in, you might go to be with Jesus' people on Sunday, and when you can squeeze it in, you might read the Bible. If you're not too busy, or is Jesus everything to you? He says, who do you say that I am? And, and the answer is, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, the distance between the earth and the moon is 93 million miles. Okay? If, if this piece of paper represented part of that mileage between the, the, between the earth and the moon, 93 million miles, I could stack a paper equivalent to 70 feet of paper to represent the, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. If this represents the distance between the earth and the moon, okay, one sheet of paper, the distance between the earth and the nearest star would be 70 feet of paper. 70 feet of paper stacked up. That's mind-blowing right there, okay? If, if you take the whole Milky Way galaxy, which is just one of billions of galaxies, this paper would stack up 300 miles high. God created a massive universe. And, and, and the planet Earth that we live on is like one little grain of sand in billions of beaches. And God created all that. And it says he holds the universe in his hands. How massive is God? Okay? He, he is so big that he's the type of God you don't ask him to become your little helper in life. Your vending machine. That if I do this, God, you give me this, right? Deal? I heard someone say the other day, you know, that they asked God to do this for them and God didn't do it. So I don't know why if I believe in God. Oh yeah, so you, God's supposed to serve you, not you serving God. Is that what you're saying? And, and people have this, what's called therapeutic moralistic deism. That they, they believe if I do good, God has to do good back to me. And that's not the way it works. Because you and I deserve nothing. Anything that God gives us is more grace than we could ever deserve. In fact, that's the whole definition of grace. It's something you don't deserve. God isn't some little, he doesn't deserve to be just a little part of your life. He should be your life. You and I should wake up every morning, God, what do you want me to do today? I'm going to work. How can I best represent you at work? I am now getting out of my car and go, walking into the front door of my house. How can I be Christ to my family, to my wife? I'm going to bed at night. You give me sleep, and you're the one who gives me life to wake up in the morning. All day long, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Not just the center of your life, everything about your life. You see, if I introduce to you my wife, Tammy Milborn, okay? And you say, okay, Tammy, good to meet you. I like the Tammy, don't like the Milborn. Can you separate the two? No, you can't do that. You get the Tammy with the Milborn. It's a package deal. But you know what's being taught in America today and all around the world is? You can accept Jesus as Savior, but don't worry about the Lord part. He's Savior and Lord. You can't separate the two. So yeah, I want the Savior part because I don't want to go to hell. Who wants to go to hell? I don't want to burn down there. You know. So Jesus, please save me. Amen. Hey, I'm saved. And now I can live however I want. No, you make him the Lord. Notice that Lord always comes before Savior in the Bible. Lord and Savior. Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you will confess your mouth, the Lord Jesus, and believe that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Lord and Savior, they're inseparable. But Lordship is involved in your salvation, giving your life to him. Here it is. 
written. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, Jesus died for your sins. Think about all the sins you've ever committed. Every, even the worst of them, Jesus took upon himself. You should have been punished. I should have been punished. And Jesus traded places with us. And it says, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Have you made public profession of Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord, your Lord and your Savior? I would like for everybody here to pray with me, if you would. Just bow your heads and close your eyes. If you know for sure, for sure that you're saved, then you need to spend some time thanking the Lord for that salvation. And number two, praying that God would open eyes. And we're inviting people here today to make a decision to trust Christ as their Lord and Savior. If you, if you have not trusted Christ, maybe you're not sure about heaven and hell, you can be saved and leave here today knowing for sure you've been born again and you become a child of God. You need to realize, number one, that you're a sinner. We all are. I'm not judging you. I'm just telling you what the Bible clearly says, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But the good news is there's a Savior who can prevent you from going to hell for your punishment. He, he went through hell on the cross for you, and he's willing to give himself to you as a free gift. Would you receive it right now? You could pray a prayer something like this, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, and I thank you so much that you took my place. I'm going to give my life to you right now because you gave your life for me on that cross. I believe you died for me personally, you took all my sins and forgave them, and that you rose again on the third day, proving that you are God, the, the Savior of the universe. And I make you the Lord of my life right here, right now, in Jesus' name, amen. If you made that decision, man, I'd love to hear from you, talk to you about your next steps as a new child of God. This is my cell phone number. You can text me right there. Right now. Amanda, welcome back. Glad you're here. We've composed ourselves, and you can help me with question and answer. So this is my cell phone number. Feel free to... Uh, Text in a question right now. Um, I, if you don't, if it doesn't seem to go through, it's because we don't have the best reception here. But um, and also for those of you watching online, I'll try my best to repeat the question for those who ask it out in the audience. If you want to raise your hand, so it'd help if you have my phone there, right? Just a bit. I think that's a question. I'm All not right. sure. I do not know. Oh, okay, no, this is not a question. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm just looking for questions. Anyone in the audience have a question? Well, uh, anybody? 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 All right, Patrick. All right, I've been reading Ezekiel, and several times God refers to Ezekiel as son of man. I just thought that was kind of interesting. But um, Ezekiel mentions in several passages, I think talking about righteousness, he mentions Noah, Job, and Daniel. Now, Daniel is a contemporary of Ezekiel. They were living about the same time. But was Daniel that famous that even Ezekiel heard of him and was then able to put him in his passages? Or was Daniel already famous before he went into exile for some reason? Right. So when or Ezekiel... another Daniel that we're not even thinking about? No, I definitely think it's the same Daniel contemporary. But realize that when Daniel was... Uh, so let me repeat the question. Uh, there was two parts. Ezekiel refers to himself as a son of man. I'll answer that. And number two, Ezekiel mentions uh, Job. Who did you say? Noah, Job, and, and Daniel as being righteous men. And the, the second part of the question is, was Daniel that famous? Uh, 
by then? And the answer is yes, because when Daniel's writing most of Daniel's, he is in his late 80s or early 90s. And most of the stuff that he did, um, um, okay, for Z the lion's den was in, as an older man, but all the other ones being carried away into captivity, refusing to eat the king's meat, all those things were done as a teen or early 20s. So yeah, it's about 60, 70 years of history of Daniel there to where he would be famous. So that's a great question. The son of man, so... Um, Raise your hand if you're a child of God, right? Okay, so, but are we the son of God, capital S? No, Jesus is the son of God. Raise your hand if you're a disciple. Yes, you can raise your hand. <laughs> but are you one of the disciples, capital D? No, uh, we're all sent to go share the gospel. So in that sense, we're, we're an apostle. We're, this is all apostle means. But are we one of the apostles, capital A? No. So you see that over and over again. In fact, if you're anointed, even the word Christ and Messiah could apply to you. And I know that sounds heretical to some people, but, but Christ is the anointed, the prophet of God, the Christ of God, capital C. So you see that going on, that, that two titles there. So son of man was a top prophet of titles, but the son of man was the ultimate prophet, Jesus Christ. So good question. Good question. I hope I gave a decent answer for that. Anybody else have a question? Man, it's like feast or famine. We either have seven or we have none. And okay. I have two questions. Would the demons we read about in the Bible, okay, would the demons we read about in the Bible, are these fallen angels? Yes, absolutely. Um, we have no reason to believe anything else. Um, so again, there was a heavenly host before the, the world was created. And one third of the angels, we don't know one third of what, rebel, followed Satan, Lucifer in rebellion against God because he said he wanted to be like the Most High and receive worship. And he was cast out of heaven. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. So it happened immediately. It wasn't a long drawn out battle. So then they were on earth. And then my, my belief is that some of the demons, not all of them, tried to cohabit with women and possibly legend says at this place, the gates of hell. And, and God said, no, no, you're not doing that. And they were cast in the chains of outer darkness. So some of the demons are already bound the rest will be bound when uh, Jesus comes and grabs Satan by the back of the neck and casts him in the bottomless pit with all of his demons, okay? So some of them, we don't know how many, are already bound. The rest will be bound later. So many are still active today, bothering you and me and lots of people. But yes, there's no other category of demons that we know of. And so where the Bible is silent, I'll be silent. But where the Bible speaks, we'll speak. So we'll call only on what God showed us. Also, did the alphabet we have today come from the Bible times in the beginning? No. Um, um, so there's several different civilizations that have alphabets. Some have one or two more letters or less letters. The Hebrew alphabet is de different than the English alphabet. Uh, the concept of an alphabet um, uh, is from even earlier languages than Hebrew. So it, it's not based on the Bible. The Bible used alphabets, but... In fact, if you read the Psalms, they're uh, in alphabetical order, like each one has an A, a B, and the equivalent of the Hebrew. In fact, if you read it in Hebrew, each verse would begin with the letter of the heading, which is really cool. So, um, but anyway, that's all. Any other questions? Yes. Okay. If the universe is in the Lord's hand and the universe is expanding, does that mean that the Lord is also growing as the universe does? No. The fact that, because God is limitless. He's already limitless. So he doesn't need to expand. And remember this, if, um, 
if someone makes a computer, are they in the computer? No, they're outside the computer. And they, they can do what they want with the computer, but they're the creator of the computer, but they're outside of it, okay? Shakespeare is not inside of Macbeth. He wrote Macbeth, okay? Um, so God is outside of his creation. He is not in, he, he's everywhere in his creation, but he's not, he is not the same as creation. That's pantheism. Pantheism believes that God is the tree, God is the stars, God is the dirt, God's everything. No, God made all that. He's like the pro computer programmer outside of the laptop, okay? So, and God is limitless, so he, there is no end to him, so he's not expanding. Um, but the universe, I think he created expanding to represent his infinite power. So, good question. Why is gay being a sin? Why, is, okay, so um, it's, some people say that's just Old Testament. It's Old Testament and New Testament. It's for before the Bible. It's for today. Uh, there's a million scriptures, but Leviticus, Deuteronomy both say men should not lie with men like they would lay with a woman. Women should not lay with women like they would lay with a man. It's forbidden. And it doesn't just say, it's just a minor thing. It says this is an abomination. And here's the big picture. Our bodies are not our own. They do not belong to us. They are to glorify God in our bodies. And one way we glorify God is the picture of a man and a woman come together is a picture of God through Jesus Christ loving his church, okay? A man enters into a woman just like the word of God enters into us and brings life. When a man enters into a woman and his seed is planted there, it brings new life. And that's what Jesus Christ does. He enters into us and brings life, new life to us. And that's what the picture is. And so that's why Satan is fighting marriage so hard because if he destroys that picture, he destroy, he's destroying the picture of the gospel. Okay, so it is not up to you to choose what you want to do. You do what you're intended to do, what you're created to do. I can take a hammer and try to use it to, to floss my teeth, but it's not going to be very effective, and I'm going to do damage to myself. You use a hammer for what it's made for. You, use, you need to use your body for what it's made for. Now, do people have identity issues? Yes, they do, okay? Especially in the world that contributes to it, but can people be born with identity issues? Maybe, but... If a girl was 14 years old and anorexic and she looks in the mirror and she sees a fat girl, even though she's only 80 pounds wet, are we going to affirm that she identifies as a fat person and say, you're okay, yeah, you're fat, keep going on diet? Or are we going to help her see her for what she truly is and that is someone who doesn't see herself properly and needs to see herself accurately so that God can heal her and bring life to her, okay? So just because you identify as something doesn't mean that's what you are. It just means you've got, it's called gender dysphoria. And it was a psychological disorder up until it became politically incorrect to call it that just three years ago. Okay. And homosexuality was a psychological disorder up until about 20 years ago. So do we love homosexuals? Amen. Right. We love them. We care for them. They struggle with this sin. We struggle with this and we all struggle with sin. Okay. But the problem with that sin is it, it's an attack on the gospel, which is true of, of a heterosexual man who's unfaithful to his wife. He is destroying the picture of the gospel because is Jesus ever unfaithful to you? No, but if you're unfaithful to your wife, what you, guess what you're doing? You're painting a bad picture of Jesus, okay? So um, I think that's good. So uh, again, um, people will say, well, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. Um, he said it in the positive. He said, from the beginning, a marriage has been a man and a woman for a lifetime. So he's telling you, if that's what it is, everything else is what it's not. And of course, then Paul, 
lists all kinds of sins, and he talks about actually two types of homosexuals, those who are effeminate and those who are abusers of mankind. The men, one playing the feminine role and one playing the, male role, the masculine role, and that they're both guilty of sin in that situation. And then he calls in Romans chapter 1, women doing with women that which is unseemly. It doesn't even make sense, okay, because it doesn't bring about life. Okay, only the, the natural relationship where God created is what creates life. And that's what the picture is about. Jesus giving life. All right. And then um, Corey sent a picture of his beautiful baby girl, Carly. Yay. So, <laughs> so it's Carly. Carly. So uh, Corey and Charity, you know, the letter C's and then they got their sons. Um, now I'm going to blank out here. Uh, Carter Caleb. and Caleb. And now, and then they got the third boy is Cody. And now baby girl, Carly. So let's give them a hand at home. All right, cool. Thank you. All right, let's stand. It's good to have first-time guests in the house. Let's give them a hand. We're glad they're here. All right, Patrick, since you're standing there, why don't you dismiss us in prayer? <laughs> Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you, and we know that you are the only one who is absolutely worthy of anything, worthy of praise, worthy of worship, worthy of judging this world because you are perfect and you're the one who created it. Lord, we love you. We ask for your blessing upon us as we go upon the, out on this week. Lord, keep us, in your, keep us in your minds and keep you in our minds as we go. We love you and we thank you in Jesus Christ's mighty name. Amen.